0: All right. Well, the rest of us, let's take out our Bibles once again and find Matthew chapter sixteen. Matthew chapter sixteen. We're going to read verses thirteen through twenty. But we're really only going to focus on one verse. And that is verse eighteen in the promise of Jesus to build his church. Let's begin reading in verse 13 of Matthew 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say, that he was the Christ. Now let's just pause and ask God's blessing upon this passage. Father, we do thank you for these truths and we thank you for the words of Jesus that are helpful and instructive to us. And I pray that as we begin a little mini-series here on the church, that you would bless these probably three Sundays, and I pray that you would bless them and encourage us in being part of your community in this world, that we would see the importance of it. Father, I ask for your help now by your Spirit to teach and exhort, and that the power of Christ could rest upon me so that everyone here can understand what your Word is saying and teaching us and how we should appropriately respond. And so I'm asking this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was the very well-known 19th century English preacher in London, said this, Nothing in the world is dearer to God's heart than His church. Therefore, being His, let us also belong to it, that by our prayers, our gifts, and our labors, we may support and strengthen it. If those who are Christ refrained, even for a generation, from numbering themselves with His people, there would be no visible church, no ordinances maintained, and I fear little preaching of the gospel." End quote. Nothing, said Spurgeon, in the world is dearer to God's heart than his church. Do you believe that? We as the church are the people of God in this world. And he has a unique, special, enduring, protective love for us. In addition, when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, we are told in one of the metaphors of the, uh, the church in the New Testament that we are the body of Christ. He, of course, is the head. He is so intimately connected to His people that in the beginning of the church, in the book of Acts, as persecution began, really under uh, the Apostle Paul, and he was better known by his Hebrew name at that time, Saul, he was persecuting the church, And the risen Christ appears to uh, Paul in this time when he is doing that, knocks him to the ground with uh, Jesus' glory, just knocks Paul to the ground uh, and says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The identification with his people is so close that Jesus says, when they are being harmed and persecuted, harassed, it is me who is being harmed and persecuted and harassed. We are those who are dear to the heart of God in this world. Now, we want to do something in these next uh, couple of weeks, uh, Sundays, just before we jump into Romans 9, we want to talk about the church, and of course we're going to use the Bible to do that. We need to always be maintaining a healthy biblical theology, if you will, of the church. We need to be answering the question, what does the Bible teach about the church and making sure that our view of the church is aligned with God's Word. That we don't uh, start to misunderstand the church or what the church is about or what the church should be doing, but that we're going into the Word of God to define the church for us, asking, what does the Bible teach us about this topic? Everyone, and I mean everyone, has opinions about the church. Everyone has opinions about what the church is, what the church should be doing, what the church should be focused on, what constitutes a good church or a not-so-good church, a healthy church. Everyone has opinions about what programs it needs, where its emphasis should lie, what kind of music it should have, how long the services should be, and the list could go on and on about the opinions that people hold about the church. But friends, opinions are only helpful when they're good opinions, and when it comes to the church, they're only good opinions if they come from the Bible. When it comes to the life of the church, we want to know what God says about it, and that will help chart our course. Next week, we're going to analyze some portions of Acts chapter 2, which is the beginning of the church, and that makes sense because the foundation of the church is being laid in Acts chapter 2, and so there are things we can learn. But I think to really gain a good and robust view of the church we want to look at the first passage in which the word church is used. And we just read that passage, by the way. Both chronologically in the story of the gospel and of Jesus Christ, but also in just the providential order of your Bible that Matthew comes first, we find that the first time that this word church is used comes from Jesus Himself in this announcement, this promise that He gives to His disciples in verse 18, where He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build My church. There's the promise. I will build My church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the first time this word church arrives in our Bibles. Now, I'm not going to spend much time or any time really on what he said before that. It might strike your curiosity where after Peter professed Jesus to be the Messiah and the Son of the living God and Jesus pronounces that blessing upon Peter and says those words, I tell you, you are Peter, Cephas, which means stone, and I tell you, on this rock, uh, meaning more of a boulder, I will build my church. And commentators do, debate and historically have done that about what he means by that. They come up with several ideas. Some say, well, it's on the profession Peter has made here. and That's what Jesus is going to build his church upon. Others say, no, it's on Peter himself. And they say, look right into Acts chapter 2, and you can see Peter was the one who under the Spirit preached the gospel the first time and people came to faith in Christ and the church was began. Others were saying, well, Jesus is, is using hand motions here, essentially, and he's saying, uh, you are Peter and on this rock I'm going to build my church. And I'll never forget the seminary professor saying, if your solution to a text relies on hand motions, you might be in dangerous waters here. Regardless of where we land with that, the promise is clear. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know, friends, even jumping forward almost to my conclusion, did you realize that us being here this morning is evidence of the reliability and faithfulness of that promise to this day. Do you know how much opposition the church has experienced in these 2,000 years? And yet here we are. And there are people like us right now all over the world. Gathered in various communities as the church of Jesus Christ It's a powerful promise, isn't it? A powerful promise. But now the first thing in this promise to observe is that Jesus is the source of the church. I think it's instructive that the first time this word church appears, it comes from Jesus and not from one of his apostles. In other words, the church wasn't their idea in the book of Acts after Christ was crucified and rose again. And then they said, hey, let's start this thing called the church now. And we'll start it around the person of Jesus Christ. It wasn't their idea. It comes from Jesus himself. It's not an invention of man. It's not a. Result of man's creativity or thoughtfulness. It comes from Jesus, and that means that we need to turn to Jesus and turn to Scripture to let Him define through His Word what it is and what it's supposed to be doing. Did you know that the church doesn't have the freedom to just do whatever it wants to do? Because Jesus is the head of the church and the church is His body, we receive all of our direction from Him. That's when every aspect of church life is governed then by His Word. Reformers eventually called this the regulative principle, especially in worship. That as you gather together to worship, you don't just invent things that you want to do in worship to God. You do what God has instructed you to do. Because after all, this is worship of Him. We are His people. This is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. Since this is his, He is a source of this church, He is its absolute authority. Colossians chapter 1, verses 17 to 18 says this And he that is Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The Pope is not the head of the church. What a silly notion. That position is held by one man, and his name is Jesus. That means when I am telling you what to do as the church, it isn't me telling you what to do as long as what I'm telling you what to do is coming from the Word of God, right? So, next week perhaps, or maybe the week after, as we look at the concept of the early church devoting themselves to these key areas of the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And I say, we need to devote ourselves to this. That isn't my idea, is it? That comes with a far greater authority than I have. That comes from Jesus Christ. We could add to that all of the other commands for the one another's, the church that you find in Scripture. That these find their source in Jesus. He gets to define who we are and what we do. The church comes from Jesus Christ. He is the source. Secondly, according to this promise... I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church we find is comprised of people. The church is comprised of people. You say, "Where in the world in Matthew 16:18 do you see the word people?" Well, here's where we have to have an understanding about what the word church means. What it was actually in the days when it was being used by these Greek-speaking people. What did that word church mean? And that's where I'll show you that it's comprised of people. The word that's translated in our Bible's church is the underlying Greek word, ekklesia. And that Greek word, ekklesia, is comprised of two words, ek, which is a preposition, and it means out of or from and then the other word is kletos or kaleo in the in the verbal form, and that means called. Or a called. So if you combine those two things together, at its very basic meaning would be called out ones. Those who have been called out. And what it came to mean by the time that it was used by Jesus and the apostles and in the scriptures, this Greek word ekklesia meant a gathering or assembly or a congregation, listen now, of people who were called out and gathered for a purpose. They had assembled for a purpose. I can picture as this word was developing even as words often do throughout time and they take on various meanings due to context, but I can imagine in a day and age where they didn't have Certain kinds of communication like we have, like phones and other ways that we could uh, assemble or convene a group to meet about something. They would have to go through, perhaps, a village or a town and call out to people. Come now, we have some business to address. Let's gather together, you see. What we find is that the Holy Spirit chose this particular word. To be the word that defines us as a people. We are those called out and assembled for a purpose. Notice that word, assembled, gathered. The assemblies of God, churches of course, caught on to this. That's why they're called the assemblies of God, you see. What is the church? It's a gathering of people who are gathered for a specific purpose and the name itself defines the priority then of the church and this may surprise you if we are a gathering of people assembled for a purpose that's really the essential meaning of the word itself then our priority is that of gathering. We are most being the Church when we 're gathered together it 's an important aspect to see we 're most being the Church when we 're assembled together for the purpose of Christ and the gospel and the worshiping of God. That doesn't mean we don 't are not still the Church as we leave here and scatter. I agree with that we 're still the church. But the church is being most of the church in keeping with its very name when we are assembled together. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 44, I don't think I have this on screen, but I'll just pull out one word to you. This seemed instinctual to the church from the very beginning. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. The essence of the church then is togetherness, it's assembly, it's congregation. The reason it's so important to define that word is because when I use the word church, different ideas and images pop into all of our minds. Remember, as a kid, Growing up, if somebody were to say the word church, I immediately thought of the place that I gathered with the people that I knew my whole growing up years, week upon week. You may think of something different. But friends, when you think of the church, you must think of it in terms of the people and the people that are together, an assembly for a purpose. Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 24 to 25 says then, and here is an application to us all, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, listen to this, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the foundation, this gathering, this assembly, This togetherness is the foundation of what the church is. I had a conversation just a couple of years ago with somebody up at Twin Peaks Camp and they live over on the Front Range and they're part of a church plant there and he was explaining to me their philosophy that they feel like the church has become too enamored with really worship and meeting together and they feel the church should be more involved in evangelism and so they're philosophy that they laid out and the the direction that they went is that they would have a gathered assembly every week where every Sunday where they'd worship but then the next Sunday they would uh, go out and evangelize. And I shared with him I didn't think that was a good idea at all. Because the core of who you are is God worshipers gathered together for worship of God and really your best evangelism is going to be done when the other six days of the week you scatter into your daily lives, you see. But to neglect the weekly worship, which the early church did not do, and no passage of the New Testament and all of the instructions to the church ever tells them to not meet together. As a matter of fact, it encourages them to meet together all the more. See, that's a wrong direction. Well-motivated, well-intentioned, I hear them. Well-intentioned evangelists, but wrong nonetheless. And this means if the church is comprised of people, then one important thing to realize then is that the church is not a building. The church is not a place. The church is not a destination you drive to. This building belongs to the church and it's a wonderful thing to have when you're a local church to have an actual building that is yours to utilize for ministry purposes and doing the things that God wants His church doing. But this church is not a building, or a place. I intended to put up a picture for you, but in my typical fashion was unable to get it into the proclaim, which set my heart and spirit in a downward direction this morning right before the service. But it is a picture you can look at in my office of a Russian church. Well, a church somewhere in the uh, former Soviet Union assuming Russia, maybe one of the surrounding countries now, they're considered former Soviet world. And it was during a time of persecution, and this picture is these believers out in the woods, and there's about two feet of snow on the ground, and they're bundled together and huddled together, and the pastor is standing there with a Bible, and there's a little table in front of them with a Uh, uh, some communion elements that are on that table and they are gathered there together in the woods surrounded by trees and snow out in nature because, of course, during that time the Soviet Empire wouldn't let them meet oftentimes. They took their buildings away from them and used them for government purposes and so they didn't have a building. But let me tell you something. They were the church. That was the church of... Jesus Christ, those were God's people. And I'll tell you, when you look at that picture, it's really hard to complain about the temperature in this room. (laughs) A church doesn't need a building. A church uses the building. Church buildings didn't come about for centuries, essentially, after the church was born It's when they started actually developing buildings for themselves. And that leads me to the third point. The church belongs to Jesus. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church doesn't belong to one person or to a board of people doesn't belong to the members or to any to those who have attended the longest it doesn't belong to the ones who give up their most time or resources it doesn't belong to those with the most money or the most prestige in the community it doesn't belong to the most theologically astute or biblically knowledgeable. The church is Jesus' church. This is his assembly. These are his people. The church belongs to him. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul had gathered the Ephesian elders. We're going to look at this passage a little closer tonight and talking about eldership and Mark Varoshka becoming an elder. Paul gathered the Ephesian elders together and he said to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, listen to this, to care for God's church, which He obtained with His own blood or the blood of His own. Jesus purchased His church with His own blood. It's His by right, It belongs to Him. That means the people of the church, remember. The people of the church belong to Jesus Christ. And how precious they must be to Him. Because He gave His life for them, you see. They belong to Jesus. He owns the church. I think if we understand this and we view the church in this way and by the church again remember the assembly of called out ones of which you're a part this community of people when you view them as members of the church belonging to Jesus people that he purchased with his own blood it will lead you to be more careful careful with the people of the church more cautious with how you handle this precious commodity. You won't treat the church so flippantly or carelessly or thoughtlessly. You will treat the church carefully as the people of God. Belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul put out this solemn warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He said, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. There needs to be a healthy fear in the hearts of God's people as they work with, deal with, relate to His people. When you understand that the people sitting around you are the people who belong to Jesus... That he purchased with his blood. It should make you more cautious in how you treat the people of the church. Fourth, from Matthew sixteen, eighteen. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Notice something important that when Jesus in his earthly life gave this promise, it was a future promise. I will build my church. In other words, it isn't something that has happened or even is happening in the moment. It's something that he's going to do. This is a future promise or plan. That tells us that the church begins in the New Testament and in Christ and especially in Acts chapter 2 and the outpouring of the Spirit and that you cannot say that Israel was the church in the same way that the new covenant people of God is the church. It's something future. Stephen does, and this is important to know, refer to Israel in the wilderness with this very word, ecclesia. As a matter of fact, In Acts chapter 7 and verse 38, he's preaching a message to Jewish peoples in uh, verses 37 and 38. He says, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the church or in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He refers to Israel as the church and some well-intentioned and brothers and sisters in Christ of what I would call a fully covenantal reform position would say, see, Israel is a church and now in the new covenant, now the, the church, the new covenant church kind of replaces Israel and there's this continuation as though they were the same. And I would say, I don't see it that way. Israel truly was an ecclesia. They were God's people of the old covenant. There's no denying that. If you were to say, was there a church in the Old Testament, if we understand what the word means, right, ecclesia, which is used, by the way, many, many times in the Greek translation of the uh, Hebrew uh, Scriptures, this word ecclesia over and over again, applying it to the gathering of God's people in the Old Covenant. That's, is, that's absolutely true. But they are not the church of Jesus Christ. This church was a future promise. And Paul said this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. He said, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Listen, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, being Israel and Gentiles. This church is new. Something new is happening in the book of Acts, and it's exciting, and it's wonderful, and it's vibrant. To be a part of the community of the new covenant people of God, Jesus Christ, to be a part of this church is something that the Scriptures want us to be thrilled about. What a privilege! All of God's promises from that old covenant era being fulfilled in Christ and now through His people in this great mystery, as Paul calls it, something that was hidden in ages past but now has been revealed to us in this new congregation of God's people. What a wonderful thing it is. This was a future promise. And then fifthly, I will build my church, says Jesus, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Notice carefully, Jesus is the one doing the building. How is the church built? Or by whom, rather? Better question, by whom is the church built? The church is built by Jesus. He is the one who is building and growing His church throughout this world. You know what an interesting, actually turn there because we'll be concluding with these verses in Acts 1. Look at Acts chapter 1. As I said, Acts, the book of Acts is church history. If you want to study church history, I understand that its roots are in the Old Testament. I get that. But church history begins, really, when the church began. And that's in Acts chapter 2. And so this book, the book of Acts, is a recording of the beginning of the church. Uh, Luke is showing the spread of the church first among Jewish people and then breaking out into Gentiles and throughout the known Roman world at that time. This is the beginning of the church. But let me draw your attention to the very first verse of the book of Acts. Now remember, Luke wrote Luke, which was his gospel of Luke, that records the life and teaching and ministry and uh, miracles and, and death and resurrection of Christ. But then he writes this second book and he says this in the first verse. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. In the Gospel of Luke, I began, Theophilus, with everything that Jesus just began to do and to teach. When I use that word began, like Jesus had begun something, what is that implying about now? What am I going to write now, says Luke? I'm going to write about what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. This is all Jesus' work in this world. The church universal and every person that comes to faith in Christ and all these churches that are built up. This is Jesus continuing to build His church. He's working even right now in this room building His church. Helping us, strengthening us, encouraging us, calling some of you perhaps even to faith in Himself. This is all the work of Jesus. Now this does not mean, though, does it? That the church just sits back and doesn't do anything. We don't say, oh, Jesus has got this, so nothing for me to do in this endeavor. What we find, and what's so thrilling, is that Jesus said, I will build my church. It's going to be me doing it. But I do this through my people. That what we find is that as Jesus builds his church and remains faithful to his promise, he does it through us. Right here in the book of Acts in chapter 1, he tells them in verse 4 and 5 to wait in Jerusalem, don't do anything, until you've received the Holy Spirit he said in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And We see from Acts chapter 2 on as Jesus builds his church, he does it through the church, you see. He works through his people in order to do his work. You're doing the work of Christ when you are serving and giving and encouraging others and witnessing and evangelizing and raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It is Christ through you who is doing this work. It's a very thrilling thing. In Ephesians chapter 4 verses 13 to 16, uh, rather just at the beginning of verse 15, Paul says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. From Christ, right? We're joined, we're held together, we're equipped, but then the, the, the various parts and components of the body, Jesus is working through them to build this church. Understand this, we are the presence of Christ in this world. We are here to be the presence of Christ in this world. We are His body. When Jesus came into the world, John said that He was the light of the world. And Jesus looked right at His disciples and said, You are the light of the world. Christ shines through us. We are His body within this world when we are participating in this and doing as Paul said we're working properly Jesus then builds his church through his people you realize that this view of life gives your life meaning right if you're ever wondering about what is the meaning and purpose of your life if you're a Christian it's to be the body of Christ in this world Because Jesus is working and building His church, and He does it through us. That's your life. This is why when Paul was on trial for his life in Philippians chapter 1, didn't know if he'd be put to death or not, he said, For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. You see, to live as Christ is fruitful labor for Jesus Christ in this world as He builds His church through His people. That's what it means to live in and for Jesus Christ. It means every day of your life is about Him about recognizing who you are as a member of the body of Christ it's about uh, analyzing yourself as we read Romans chapter 12 and the measures of faith and gifting that God has given to you and that you are now to go and use those for the glory of God in every aspect of your life that's what it means for me to live is Christ and finally we'll leave with this Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, which means that Jesus will preserve his church. He has protected and preserved his church for two millennia now of intense opposition in every age. Sometimes, as we mentioned earlier, the Soviet Empire making it their mission to abolish the church to stomp it out, but they could not do it. I remember when I was at a worship service in Moscow, thinking this was the center place of the Soviet Empire where they produced a magazine that they sent out to people called The Atheist, where all of the orders from that regime went forth to persecute Christians and get rid of Bibles and imprison Christians and take their buildings from them. And here we are together. It was a packed room, young and old together, and we're all worshiping Jesus Christ. Their services went on, by the way, for three hours sometimes, a little different than ours. We're sissies. That's probably because they know what they had. They know what it is to gather when you lose that. But at any rate, Jesus preserves His church. We, this morning, at Calvary Bible Church, are proof of that. And friends, as we go about doing the work of Jesus Christ in our lives, we can be confident of that. No matter what. I pray every week for the United States I'm asking God to preserve our freedoms here for the sake of the church and what we're able to do. But do you realize that even if we lost that, hypothetically speaking, Jesus will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do you understand? No human authority, no spiritual authority has any say upon this. Jesus Christ is the one with all the authority in heaven and on earth. He is the one with the sovereign power to protect His people and to continue to stay faithful to His promise to build His church until He comes again. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the church. Help us to love it. Help us to appreciate it. Help us to serve it. Help each one here to see their place. And the purpose they, you have for them. For us to see that for us to live is Christ. And yes, to die is gain. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.